So I think it's time to get started. Uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague, Dr. Jeff Lennox, who is a professor of medicine at Emory University uh, and has been very active in uh, the governance of Grady Hospital, as well as their Ponce Clinic, which sees thousands of patients in the Atlanta area. And he's going to give us an update on what we saw at CROI 2021. Jeff. All right. Thank you, Michael. And um, as Michael mentioned, I'm going to be doing an update on CROI 2021. So the learning objectives you can see on the slide, um, talking about new antiretrovirals, some of the complications of antiretrovirals, and then some treatment data about SARS coronavirus too. Next. This is the statistics from the Retrovirus Conference. There were 700 almost abstracts accepted for the conference. 109 of those were oral, 589 were posters, and many of the posters were really incredibly high quality. And then this year, almost a quarter of the content was related to the SARS coronavirus 2 outbreak, which I'll call COVID-19 for brevity uh, moving forward. So um, there was quite a bit of SARS uh, COVID disease in this year's retrovirus. Next. So first we're gonna talk about new antiretrovirals. There's not a lot of new antiretrovirals, but a very interesting one was this GSK 364254, which I'll just call 254. So the company presented the results of a small phase to a dose ranging study that in the first part was testing two different doses, a 10 milligram dose and a 200 milligram dose. And there was six people in each of those two arms and then two people in the placebo arm. And these were treatment naive people who weren't on any other antiretroviral therapy. They gave them 10 days of monotherapy versus placebo. They then did a planned interim analysis to see if there was any safety signal or any issues that they saw and then went into a phase two study, or a part two of the of the study, excuse me, um, looking at three different doses, 40, 80, and 140 milligrams. And then the primary endpoint was the maximum change from day one in the plasma HIV RNA. Next. So on the left, you see the results from the first phase and this is the phase where people were given seven, or excuse me, 10 days of monotherapy. And what you can see in the 200 milligram group that several of the um, participants, you know, there were only six, I, I guess I should say a few of the participants developed resistance to the maturation inhibitor by day 10 or 11, or in some cases a little bit earlier. And so this was quite concerning. Now, they didn't see any resistance in the very low dose group, and that's probably because the dose was not high enough to really affect viral replication in such a small group of patients. So in the next phase, what they did is they cut the monodosing or the dosing interval back to seven days, and they gave higher doses than the 10 milligrams, but not as high as the 200, although I don't know why that would make a difference. But shortening the therapy interval, they didn't see any resistance in the second group. And they showed somewhat of a dose response, as you can see, where the 140 milligrams was probably better than the other two arms, but all three arms showed biologic efficacy 
of about a log to a log and a half at seven days, which is a reasonable potency for a new agent. So this makes it look like this maturation inhibitor might have promise in combination with other antiretrovirals. And um, obviously further larger studies need to be done um, looking at how easily and how rapidly resistance emerges uh, to this agent. Next slide. Now, another new agent, some results of which were presented last year and which I've also included on this slide is linacapavir, which is a capsid inhibitor. And those of you that have been following the field for a while know that people have been trying to develop therapeutic capsid inhibitors for well over a decade now. Now, this capsid inhibitor, it's been shown, linacapavir, that it has activities at several of the steps where capsid plays a role in the viral life cycle. So in the figure on the upper right, you can see that where the X's are and the, and the blue lines, that basically linacapavir somewhat inhibits um, capsid disassembly. It's probably its major action is in blocking entry of the integration complex prior to nuclear entry, but it also has activity um, in production and obviously in capsid assembly, which is one of the critical steps in the viral life cycle. So it appears to have multiple uh, steps that linacapavir inhibits. It's got a very long half-life compatible with once a week dosing. And the graph on the bottom part of the slide is the data that was presented at Retrovirus last year, showing that a single subcutaneous dose of linacapavir in this you know, small study produced about a two-log decline in viral load in people who were treatment naive. Next. Now, the first of the new data about linacapavir that was presented at this year's retrovirus study was a data looking at drug interactions. Uh, it was known that linacapavir had some commonalities with some of our other antiretrovirals and that there are effects of some cytochrome P450s and possibly PGP on linacapavir metabolism. So this study was designed looking at a strong inhibitor of cytochrome P53A4, darunavir, ritonavir, adazanavir, ritonavir to look at the UGT1 and PGP, and then rifampin as a general inducer of many of these same pathways, and also giving it with uh, famotidine to see if a strong acid reducer would have an effect on absorption. And so what was found was that darunavir, ritonavir, adazanavir, ritonavir, and famotidine had very minimal effect on linacapavir, but rifampin, if you look at the graph on the right, what you can see is that you, if you administer rifampin with linacapavir, it has a very significant effect, an 85% decrease in the area under the curve. And so linacapavir cannot be given with a strong inducer like rifampin. Now they also, in this same study, tested whether efavirenz had an impact but they didn't have the data ready for presentation. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, linacapavir interacts with adazanavir and other reverse transcriptase uh, inhibitors that induce um, some of these same enzymes. Next slide. 
Now, a very interesting study that was presented was on the use of lenacaprevir in treatment experience patients. So this was a randomized and a non-randomized study. Um, the randomized cohort gave 14 days of functional monotherapy. There was an oral lead-in phase where subjects got three oral doses of lenacaprevir over an eight-day time period. And then starting at that point, which was, I would consider an, a loading, you know, an oral loading dose, they then got subcutaneous injections of lenacaprevir every six months. And also at the 14-day time period, they optimized their background regimen. So based on the resistance testing at baseline, they then switched them from their failing regimen to an optimized background regimen plus subcutaneous lenacaprevir. And then in the non-randomized cohort, obviously these were people that had more fewer treatment options, more advanced resistance. And so they basically just went on oral lenacaprevir with optimized background from study entry. Next. Now on the left, you can see the results from the functional monotherapy phase of the study. And you can see that the people that were given the oral lenacaprevir loading, um, they had about an 80% likelihood of achieving RNA undetectability within the first 14 days versus just two of the placebo recipients um, had a, a very significant decline in viral load, a greater than half a log, excuse me, decline in viral load. And then you can look at the mean change in viral load during that functional monotherapy. And you can see again that similar to what was presented last year with the subcutaneous injection, that the oral loading dose of lenacaprevir also produced over a log and a half of viral load reduction. Now, looking at the right side of the slide with the longer term treatment with subcutaneous injection and um, optimized background regimen in people who are treatment experienced with resistance to two or more classes of antiretrovirals, that 73% of the subjects achieved undetectability um, with this twice yearly injection plus the optimized background treatment. So this looks very promising as a very long acting antiretroviral with a new mechanism of action that should work against multi-class resistant HIV. Um, there were injection site reactions. They were very mostly mild, very mild. And then two of the patients did develop lenacaprevir resistance, which is not surprising because a quarter of the patients or more didn't get to non-detectable. So it's not surprising that two people developed resistance. So this looks very promising, and I'm looking forward to seeing more results with lenacapavir. Next. Now, a new non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor, MK8507, has a resistance profile that's very similar to deravarine, but it has a very long half-life that's suitable for once weekly dosing. So this is, you know, something that could potentially be used as a intermittent regimen once weekly. And you can see on a log scale, the MK8507 sensitivities against common NNRTI resistant viruses. Uh, and the log scale sort of hides some of this drama, but MK8507 looks very similar in its activities to Dravarine and Etravirine as far as working against some of the 
resistance isolates that are, we commonly see in clinical practice. So it should be suitable for second-line therapy after previous NNRTI failures. Next. So at the retrovirus, a single-dose antiviral potency study was presented, basically showing that after a single dose of three different doses of 8507, that all three arms um, got a one-log reduction in viral load which is, you know, showing good activity of this experimental agent. And so the company, which also owns the right to a Slatrivir, which is also a long-acting agent in the nucleoside uh, reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor class, um, they're planning a once-weekly Slatrivir plus MK8507 trial, which should already be enrolling uh, for once-weekly treatment of HIV-infected patients um, with two medicines once a week. So uh, we can all look forward to hearing those results, hopefully, uh, at a, one of the conferences next year. Now, leaving new antiretroviral therapy, I would like now like to talk about antiretroviral strategies and complications next. So the first study is the SIMTREE study, which was an randomized open-label non-inferiority trial in treatment-naive people comparing dolutegavir, 3TC, abacavir versus darunavir, cobacistat, TAF, FTC. Now, this was done in primarily men, 316 treatment-naive people, and it had a non-inferiority margin of 10%. Uh, what they showed, which is shown in the first bar graph, is that the confidence intervals of the success, the HIV RNA less than 50, exceeded 10% non-inferiority. So they therefore concluded that in treatment-naive people, darunavir, cobacistat, FTC, TAP was not non-inferior to dolutegavir, 3TC, abacavir. Uh, the other thing that was interesting about this study is that there was no difference in weight gain. So even though one of the two arms didn't include TAF, which many uh, regimens have shown a predilection of TAF plus uh, integrase inhibitors to cause um, substantial weight gain in some patients, that there wasn't effect of a TAF plus darunavir compared to Dolutegavir plus 3TC, they both gave about the same degree of weight gain. Next slide. Now, this study, the Nadia study, looked at a comparison of darunavir-rotonavir versus dolutegavir for second-line treatment of people who are failing a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. So I'm sure many or probably the vast majority of the people watching this presentation know that beginning a little bit over a year ago, in many areas of the developing world, people were switched off of their NNRTI treatment and switched to a TLD regimen of dolutegavir, lamivudine, and TDF. And there wasn't any resistance testing done. You know, people were just switched. And so the question at that point was, well, will this result in potential resistance to dolutegavir? So this study was randomized to look at the, a similar population in a randomized setting 
They also randomized to tenofovir 3TC versus idovidine 3TC, which was another part of the um, of the study, which ended up not really being interesting or important. So we're just focusing for this on the dolutegravir versus darunavir with helmavir. Next. So although resistance wasn't done prior to the switch, they did do resistance testing so that they could go back and look at what impact it had. And what they showed is that this population, 58% were resistant to tenofovir and 92% were resistant to 3TC. So if you look at the efficacy outcomes, there was no difference in any of the efficacy measures of dolutegravir versus darunavir. But if you look at resistance, which is shown in the final row in the table, four of the subjects out of um, 235 in the dolutegravir group developed significant resistance to dolutegravir with this treatment switch. So this indicates that if you see similar results in the TLD rollouts uh, throughout the developing world that have already occurred, that it's possible we may already uh, have experienced and just not know that there is dolutegravir resistance emerging in some of these clinical settings. And I, I think we will probably see more data on that in the future. It still means that it was efficacious, but there may be some drawbacks. Next slide. Uh, continued follow-up of dolutegravir 3TC as maintenance therapy was presented at the retrovirus conference. Uh, the combined results of two naive studies just looking at weight gain showed that comparing the two-drug versus the three-drug regimen, that there was more weight gain in the two-drug arm than the three-drug arm. It was not significantly different, but there wasn't any significant weight loss by dropping you know, the, the tenofovir and just being on dolutegravir 3TC. So um, the two-drug arm didn't lead to less weight gain or more weight loss. Next slide. More data on metabolic outcomes in Bictegravir TAP FTC. This was week 192 open-label extension of two randomized studies, and it was looking at bone mineral density. And so looking at this regimen that includes TAF instead of TDF, what they found is that there was no additional changes of any significance in bone mineral density after 16 weeks. Now, if you look at weight change, it also stabilized um, at about three to four years into treatment, but they didn't see any significant continued weight gain. So it appeared that most of the bone loss, which was relatively minor, um, occurred in the first 16 weeks and most of the weight gain in the first three or so years. Next slide. Now, in these trials, patients were excluded if they had known resistance to reverse transcriptase inhibitors, um, but not non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. So some people were enrolled who were known to have NNRTI resistance. And so in this study, they went back and did deep sequencing, looking retrospectively at other resistance mutations to see if the presence of these mutations had any impact on the efficacy of the Bictegravir FTC-TAF. And what they showed is looking 
at Bictegravir versus Dolutegravir with two different nucleoside backbones. You can see the number and percentage of the subjects in each of the NRTI, NNRTI, PI, and Instagrase inhibitor classes that had detectable deep sequencing resistance to those agents. And for the most part, it didn't have any impact of either of the two arms on uh, subsequent response and less than 50 at 48 weeks. And I don't think that nine out of 10 versus seven out of seven that we can draw any statistical inference from this, but it does reassure one that undetected or low level resistance to these classes um, may not have any impact on these otherwise efficacious regimens. Next slide. Looking at complications, there was a very interesting population from Northern California Kaiser where they compared uh, 82, 85 HIV infected patients compared to about 20 times as many HIV uninfected patients in their cohort looking at treated risk factors. So people who were being treated for their hypertension, treated for their HIV, treated for their diabetes, and whether these factors had an increase on elevating or affecting cardiac risk. And what they showed is you can see in the one uh, thing where it says no history of risk factor is having treated HIV elevated the risk of cardiovascular disease by about 35%, even though the HIV was adequately treated. Hypertension had a similar effect and particularly diastolic blood pressure, having an elevated diastolic blood pressure history um, also had an effect on elevating cardiovascular risk. So it looked like HIV, treated HIV and well-controlled hypertension still were risk factors for development of cardiovascular disease in HIV infected subjects, but not in uninfected subjects. Next slide. Now, preventing bone loss due to ARV, a few years ago, Retrovirus, one of my colleagues, Igo Fudikin, showed that you could prevent bone loss with a one-time long-acting bisphosphonate given at ART initiation. A second study was presented at this CROI looking at alidronate uh, oral once a week for 14 weeks versus placebo. Next slide. And what they were able to show is looking at these graphs, you can see both lumbar and total hip bone mineral density, that there was no decline in the subjects that got alidronate. In fact, there was actually an increase in both of these compared to subjects who weren't randomized to get alidronate. And so once again, demonstrating in this cohort of people who are getting a tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate uh, containing regimen, that a bisphosphonate um, could be effective in uh, preventing bone loss associated with the start of antiretroviral treatment. Next slide. Now the last of several slides uh, were the highlights of treatment trials for COVID-19. Next slide. So there was a nice trial of convalescent plasma that was given for severe coronavirus 19. So this was not outpatient treatment, not mild to moderate disease. And what they did is they selected co uh, convalescent plasma that had high titer antibody. 
And it was a nicely designed trial that was stopped for futility because midway through the study, there was no difference in mortality and no difference in time to discharge. So fairly convincingly showing that convalescent plasma wasn't providing benefit for these severely ill people. Next. The BLAZE-2 study, which was subsequently published, uh, tested bamlanivimab versus placebo as prevention in residents and employees in nursing homes. And so this basically was a large, well-designed study where people were given bamlanivimab versus placebo for prophylaxis. Next slide. And you can see in the total population on the left and in just the residents, not including the employees on the right, that the monoclonal antibody had a very significant effect in preventing symptomatic disease among those uh, residents and the employees. Now, there were four deaths and they all occurred in the placebo arm and they also measured nasopharyngeal viral load. And it was lower in the BAM arm for those who did become infected. They tended to have mild disease and have a lower viral load than in the other arm. Next. Now, a nice study was presented looking at combination monoclonal antibody treatment for prophylaxis. This was done among household contacts who were randomized to get subcutaneous injection of a combination monoclonal antibodies, casarivimab versus indevimab. It was primarily white, 53% female, median age about 45. And what you can see on the bottom left is that symptomatic PCR positive infection, there were no symptomatic cases in the combination monoclonal antibody regimen. And looking at high virus PCR positive infection, again, there were no cases in the symptomatic people. Now, looking at any PCR positive infection, so testing asymptomatic people, what they showed is that there were some infections in the, in the subjects that got the dual monoclonal, but it was half the frequency of the people who did not get it uh, had an asymptomatic infection. So, this combination prevented symptomatic infection and had at least a 50% reduction in asymptomatic infection when given as prophylaxis. Next slide. Next slide, Stephanie. Thank you. There was also a combination treatment, again, looking at bamlanivimab versus etezevimab for treatment. And the phase two study of this uh, was published in JAMA last summer. This, these are the phase three results looking at mild to moderate COVID, newly diagnosed in patients who had at least one risk factor to progression. And you can see it was a randomized combination versus placebo. Similar population uh, as described in the previous study, but a little bit more uh, BMI in this study. Next slide. And what you can see for treatment using a combination of monoclonals is that the COVID-related hospitalization or any cause death, there was a very significant reduction in the people that got the combination monoclonal antibodies. 
And looking on the right, there was also a difference in the drop in viral load in the people who got combination with a more rapid decline in nasopharyngeal viral load specimens. Interestingly, all 10 deaths occurred in the placebo arm. So once again, demonstrating in this case, the superiority of combination monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. And that's my last presentation or my last slide of the presentation. I'll turn it over to you, Michael, to, for the questions. Thanks so much, Jeff. Nice review. We're going to be covering some of the antiretroviral therapy strategy issues in the Q and in the uh, cases. So I'm going to skip questions on that real quick. For folks who are listening in, if you have a question, please put it in the Q and A box and I will get to it. But let's get started with some thoughts I had. I was, I was intrigued by the adendronate study, um, is a sort of prophylaxis against bone loss. Um, and I don't recall exactly the age. These are folks over 50, if I'm not mistaken, or are they all comers? I don't remember. Um, uh, they were all comers, but they did tend to have an older age. Um, yeah. I don't remember the exact number. Because, yeah. because I think our field is, is hampered a little bit because we started looking at bone mineral density 15 or more years ago, and we were watching, you know, these decreases in T-scores and all that, but I don't know what it means in a 30-year-old. So let's assume we're just going to be talking about 50 people 50 years or older. How do you take those data and think about it in terms of your practice? Or is that well, something you can take Well, in terms home? of your practice, if you are going to use a TDF-containing regimen, there's two studies now that show that significant bone loss associated with starting a TDF-containing regimen can be prevented. Yeah. Now, for TAF regimens, there hasn't been a randomized trial, so the results would probably need a much larger sample size since, in general, the bone loss isn't as severe, although there is bone loss. It's yeah. not as severe. But is it, the bone loss seems to be more pronounced with TDF when it's combined with a boosting agent like ritonavir or cobacistat. Does that come into your equation? It would, yes. And um, I think that in that population, you would be even more inclined to do it. Yeah. It's pretty amazing um, how much we become general internists as the years go on. And we'll talk about that some in the next session as well. Uh, again, if you have questions, put it in the Q&A box and we'll get to them. I wanted to segue back to COVID because we're not going to have uh, a specific discussion of COVID uh, treatment beyond what you just presented. We're going to hear about pathogenesis and long COVID later, but not that. So you all been using monoclonal antibody much at Emory? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have a very busy clinic that does monoclonal antibodies daily. Yeah. And we've had that as well. And I've been, I've been amazed at the, well, these are high risk people, right? Mm-hmm, right? And they're coming in, they're over 65 years of age. They have a BMI greater than 35 at any age or over 55 with some comorbidity. We've treated 900 people since late December and have only had like 19 admissions to the hospital of these high risk people. Are you seeing something similar? Yeah, the, the monoclonal antibodies work. Yeah. Yeah. And I Especially wonder the combination. Right. And and now Lily, the Lily product no longer does bamlanivimab anymore. Um, right. uh, it's all now combined with Eddie. I forgot all the full name, but it's bam Eddie. Yeah. yeah. So we have a question here from um, 
uh, the audience about going back to bisphosphonates and your thoughts. We get to Susan Buckbinder, but would you use that with PrEP? Because you might be using a TDF-FTC kind of combination without uh, any boosting agent. You know, the PrEP studies showed a minimal, I mean, there was an effect of TDF on bone mineral density, but since the population is so young yeah, and that most people aren't going to take a lifetime of PrEP, I mean, right. hopefully not. So um, I don't think I would. Yeah. And then I think we've, we sparked a lot of discussion here. The, uh, another question from Ellie um, is asking about how long might you keep someone on prophylaxis for osteoporosis or the limits of like five years or so? Um, no, I think it's shorter than that. The Ophidicon study was a one-time treatment mm. and the other study was 14 weeks of treatment. So you're trying to prevent the bone loss that's associated with inflammation and changes in, you know, production of, uh, OPG and other, um, indicators of bone turnover, et cetera. So you're trying to prevent all that bone turnover that happens during ART initiation. Exactly. And I think also, you know, while we can look at the, the graphs that social show so nicely the difference in terms of bone mineral density loss and prevention, we have to also keep in mind that there are some complications of bisphosphonates. So we want to be careful if somebody has a fracture, um, it right. might not heal as well because it interferes with bone remodeling to some degree. Right. Which I do think that it, if you were going to use it, you would use it in this instance for a very limited period of time to preserve bone mineral density in those people. Okay. And then circling back, sorry to COVID, because I just want to make sure we get it covered uh, in this uh, webinar. Um, what do you make of the uh, monoclonal antibody injection prophylaxis study with uh, the Regeneron antibody? Um, you know, I'm not sure what your question is, Mike. Oh, sorry. I mean, well, when, when might, what, in what settings might you use that concept of, of sub-Q yeah. injection to prevent transmission? Uh, but, you know, it, congregate settings, prisons, you know, places where people have no ability to protect themselves or maybe under-vaccinated. Um, right. That would definitely be where I'd consider that. Yeah, it's it's kind of a shame we didn't know about that last year when yeah. uh, these outbreaks were happening in nursing homes. But right. you know, And it might be helpful if we can get it to India. Right now they've got those exploding number of cases. And I should have said this at the outset, but we really uh, – our, our, our hearts go out to the the folks in India, but also the providers who are really struggling to help keep people alive. They're right. right. We might be more interested in prophylaxis if some of the variants that may not be neutralized by or prevented by our current vaccines become more widespread. Right. Because some of them are susceptible to certain of the monoclonal combinations, which should should work for prophylaxis, although we don't know for a fact. Yeah. Uh, Kathy Wolf has a question about any data around MCA and African-Americans as these studies participants were predominantly white. Not sure what MCA. Monoclonal antibody. Okay. Oh, yeah. Not specifically, no, that I'm aware yeah. of. Yeah. Right. And I think your point's well taken, Kathy. Um, and then finally, the, the last question we have here um, is about one of the pretest questions about um, – uh, how often do we see multi-drug resistance? And that's going to be covered in the panel, which we're going to right now. So good segue. 
Good segue.